0: Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. The New York Mets are the absolute best. I mean, sincerely, the Mets are the absolute best. And by the best, I mean one of the worst. And yesterday was no different, and they went full-on Mets all over themselves. It was incredible. Why don't we go to the bottom of the fourth inning? New York trailing Washington 2-1. Javier Baez gets to the plate. And Javier Baez gets all of this one. Pitch. Breaking ball. That's hammered. Left field and deep. Baez knows he got it all. It's long gone. Into the second deck.
1: Javier Baez stood and watched it sail. The Mets reclaim the lead. It's 3-2. to two.
0: So Baez absolutely murders that ball and then murder the celebration because he went... Double thumbs down when he crossed home plate. Jeffrey Leonard back in the day used to go one flap down. And there were, in my estimation, there will never be anything better than that. Shout out to Jeffrey for the single greatest home run trot in history. I'm on record with that. I love that. I've always loved that. I mean, given what he did with the single flap down, which was amazing, and doing it when he did it, Years ago, when that type of thing would net you 98 mph in the ear, and probably would today still, Baez does the next best thing. It'll never be as good as one flap down, but two thumbs down is pretty damn good. I mean, hear me out. In and of itself, you know, was that the freshest celebration ever? No. No, definitely not. But... It was pretty awesome when you consider why he did it, when you consider the context, when you realize he was not the only dude on that team who broke it out, all right? We'll get to why he did it in a minute, but I first want to point out that Francisco Lindor came to the plate in the bottom of the eighth, and then he did this. Lindor
1: smacks one down the line
0: toward the corner,
1: that's
0: a fair ball
1: off the wall. Mazike is in. Right behind him is VR. It's a 2 1 double for Francisco Lindor.
0: Right. So he hits one off the wall, a double, drives in a couple of runs, and then he hits everybody with the two thumbs down gesture. So, what the hell is this all about? Why are Baez, Lindor, and others going thumbs down in games? I mean, these dudes must really hate the Nats. They must really hate Washington if they're roasting them with the double down thumb gesture. Every single chance, right? The only gesture more cold-blooded than this would be the throat slash gesture. Even then, I don't know. I mean, that thumbs down is pretty savage, right? Pretty savage, right? Yeah, all right, maybe it's not. But hopefully the explanation as to why they were doing it will be savage. And that part of it did not disappoint. Check out Baez explaining why he and they
2: were going two thumbs down.
0: Hey
3: Javier, what is the thumbs down celebration after a big hit
2: mean? This is the booze that we get. You know, we like we're not we not machines. We're gonna struggle, you know. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna struggle seven times out of out of ten. And and you know, it just it just feels bad when 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 we strike when I strike out and I get boo, you know it doesn't really get to me. But like I want I want to let them know that when we success we're gonna do the same thing to to know how to to let them know how how it feels, you know. Because if we win together then we we gotta to lose together, you know. And 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 the fans are really big part of it. So um, in my case, they they gotta be better, you know. I I play for the fans and I love the fans, but you know if. If they're going to do that, they're they just put in more pressures on the team. And, and that's, not, that's not what we want.
0: Oh, hell
2: yes. I don't even
0: think you fully understand how awesome that is. That is absolutely tremendous. One of the best things I've ever heard. I mean, he starts off okay, right? This stuff about them not being machines. The fact that players are going to struggle seven times out of ten. I get that. I know that. We've all heard that before. It's a game of failure. It's true. They aren't machines. They are human. Hitting a baseball probably is the single hardest thing to do in all sports. And not being able to do so will jack with your mind and your mojo and your confidence. And then nobody wants to get booed by your own fans when you're out there busting your ass, doing everything you can to get it turned around. All right, Javi, I get it. I get it. Sort of. Not really. Because then it takes this unbelievable turn. In fact, one of the best turns ever. He goes from saying, look, man, we're just human. We hurt like you too. To, hey, yo, if you bags in the stands are going to boo us, we're going to boo you right back when we do run into one. I got to be honest. I did not see that coming. That's like some sort of sixth sense reveal right there. Like, bam! That was so great. I've never seen anything like that before. Who does that? What player boos their own fans after something good happens? An all-time heel turn. These guys managed to take a rare win yesterday and turn it into the ultimate loss. And by the way, I love it. Just like I love this line. Quote, in my case, they gotta be better. In my case... They, they got to be better. He's calling the fans out. He's saying the fans have to be better. The fans. It's an incredible line. I always love hearing or telling someone, do better. Do better. It's like, it's so, it's such a good roast and it's so real. Like, do better. But nothing is better than the member of an incredibly underachieving team telling their paying fans that they're the ones who need to do better. Not we need to do better because we are chronic underachievers not earning our paychecks. Not we need to be better players, they need to be better fans. That's what's going on here. And man, that is awesome. Hell yes. Get me a chisel. Carve that thing into granite. Post that above the clubhouse door where they can see it every single day. And maybe smack it on the way out onto the field. In fact, my man... You deserve a statue outside the stadium for trying to go with something like that. You do and say one of the best things ever, you get your own statue. That's how that works. You know, like, it's not my fault we suck. It's yours. Yeah, I'm barely hitting better than 200. But you guys better be better. You guys got to be better. I'm not the problem here. You are. You need to step up paying fans, because right now, you're choking, you're embarrassing yourselves, and I'm calling you out. Do better. <laughs> he also had this to say when he said that the booing is...
2: To let them know that, that when, we, when we don't get success, we're going to get booed, so we they're going to get booed when, when, we, when we success.
0: Oh, hell yes. Like, you're going to boo us when we don't have success, so when we do have success, we're going to boo your ass. What I'd like to do with that, man, if I could, I I literally would love to take that, print it out, shred it, go overseas, spin it with my blood, and then inject it into my system because that bleep's incredible. I'd feel no pain. Dude is like, let me tell you how it really is. Let me tell you how we'll be doing things around here going forward. I'm here to teach all of you a lesson about how you need to be better How to be good fans. Yeah, Javi, great idea. I'm sure that's going to go over really well in New York. Really well. I'm a native Californian. We know this. What do I really know about you New Yorkers? But I know enough to know this. I know that ain't going to play. Fans really love to be told how to act and how not to act. What they can say and what they can't say. When to boo and when not to boo. And according to the Mets players, apparently the time to boo the home team is never. Hey, Hav, this just in. You guys have been horrible in August. If anyone deserves to be booed for how things have gone of late, it's you slugs. Like, this is not a player reacting to fans running on the field. This is not a player reacting to fans throwing stuff at them. It's players reacting to being booed. And That reaction is
2: terrible, and there was even more. Like I said, the boost doesn't bother me. It, it kind of makes me compare, compete more. I mean, I go out there pitch by pitch and compete. Doesn't like I have a plan, but you know the other team have a plan too. We gotta play against that, and you know we'll see. I, 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 like I said, I love. I would love to play with with, with Francisco. You know, together, but. You know, we'll see what happens in the outseason um, when, that, when that gets there. But, like, right now, we, we, I'm trying to focus on, on having a, a, a good end of the year and, and, and stay healthy.
0: I love how he starts that off by saying, hey, listen, you know, the boos, they don't bother me. They don't bother me. Dude, the booze clearly bother you. Don't come in here after booing your own fans and tell us that the boos don't bother you. I'm not sure I've seen anything bother anybody more than the booze bother you right now. If by not being bothered by booze means that you unravel completely when you get booed, then I would agree you're not bothered by the booze. I mean, that's absolutely like the best thing ever. And I don't want to say, of course it's the Mets, but come on, of course it's the Mets. This is the team that had Tim Tebow taking up a spot in the farm system and the team that had a mascot flip off a fan. So if any team was going to have players booing their own fans, it would be the New York Mets. Having your star players boo the fans would be a bad situation in any city, but in New York? Are you kidding me about that? Yeah, the hell do I know again? I'm just a laid-back bra from California. What do I know? I know enough to know that ain't going to play in that town. Not with those fans. Yeah, I don't see New Yorkers seeing that and thinking, man, Javi's right. We as fans do have to do better. We as fans do have to take a long look in the mirror and own our bleep because we are horse bleep as fans. He's right. We do have to do better. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, good luck with that, Bob. I don't know if I'm more dumbstruck by the stupidity of the whole thing or actually impressed. I just know I need more of it because this is not just one dope doing it. There are multiple dopes doing it. Multiple dopes in that same underachieving clubhouse thought that that was a good idea. (laughs) Like more than one guy thought that was a good idea. I'm not sure what's more idiotic, making the gesture or then telling us why you made the gesture. Honestly, one of the more mentally weak things I've seen or heard from a pro athlete in a long time. Booing your fans because they booed you first. Like how soft and doughy is that? And we're not talking about some young guy going off the handle, right? This is a 28-year-old man, a guy who won a World Series and played in Chicago. And Javier, my man. Your batting average is barely above 200 since you arrived in New York. You've been hot garbage. How do you think they're going to react to that? Garbage! You've been sucking. They're letting you know it. That's how it works in New York. Kill it and you're a king. Hit like a minor leaguer. Get the heat. Deal with the heat. You know, just to wrap this thought, imagine having the Stones to be barely above the Mendoza line. And then thinking that not only is it okay, but it's smart to boo the fans for not cheering you. Booing the fans for not being better. Man, that is incredible. It'd be different if this guy was raking and the fans were on his case, but he's got 12 hits this month total. So I'm still shaking my head. And one more thing. It's not just Baez. Lindor signed a 10-year deal worth 341 mil before the season. And he earned it. And he's a star, and he's got crazy it. But that guy's hitting 224 this year. Fans are going to boo you for that, especially Mets fans. That's how it goes. So, yes, I know you're human. Yes, I know it sucks to have your own fans piling on you when you're struggling. But you got to wear that. That's part of your job. And don't be coming in here and telling us that you don't come to our office and boo us when we have a bad month. Your whole team has been awful. You're 8-19 this month. Your crew has been showing again. It's pretty hard to swing the bat when you have both hands around your throat instead of the bat handle, right? We are joined by Tom Curran. Tom, it's great to have you back. How are you? How are you? Romy, I've missed you. You too, dude. How are you feeling? How are things, Tom?
4: Everything's great. I just took a nice little 45-minute walk. Don't like to run. Okay, don't need that. We'll do the running on the basketball court. We just took a nice walk.
0: Man, you and you feel great. Yeah, I love that. You got to get out and move. That's the thing. Good for you. All right, so before we get into this uh, discussion, Tom, about the Pats and who they're going to start a quarterback in week one, what did you make of how Cam Newton and Mac Jones showed up last night against the Giants?
4: What's fascinating to me is the workload. And Cam was only out there for five throws and two series. And he was only out there for nine throws and two series the week before. Additionally, we know that Cam missed time because of the COVID protocols this week. So when we're looking at that, Jim, that doesn't look to me like the workload of a guy who the team is preparing to start. So that really sticks out like a sore thumb, and it is an aberration compared to what the Patriots would normally do with a quarterback competition. They have a guy, and I'm going on here, but they have a guy who came late last year, didn't have much of an offseason, missed a week, and then he only threw the ball five times Sunday night. It was weird.
0: So, first of all, dude, go on all you want. Take your time developing any of this. I've got time on my hands for sure. What about the fact, Tom, that he missed those five days? How significant do you think that is, that he missed five days due to that, quote, misunderstanding about COVID protocol?
4: It's significant on a couple of fronts. One, it just underscores how tenuous any unvaccinated player's availability is. It's the equivalent of being a person who's still, runs the risk of stepping on a bar of soap every single day they get up and go in there and take a test. If Cam goes in on a Sunday morning and gets his bio-reference test at Gillette Stadium, and 30 minutes later they say, you're positive, you got to get out of the building, party's over. Or if he's got a close contact among another unvaccinated player, or a guy who even has a breakthrough and did get vaccinated, he's out, he's done, he's got to leave. So that to me is a big highlighting of the difficulty of relying on an unvaccinated quarterback additionally it opened the door for mac jones to have what i thought was one of the best practices i've seen here he was 35 for 40 on a wednesday practice and went two and a half hours in 90 degree heat and he was dialed in he didn't have that covid protocol violation there was no opportunity for mac to show out like
0: that Tom so Kern, my guess, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Here's one thing I want to ask you. Like, it's one thing to make that personal choice not to get vaccinated. We can get into whether or not we agree or disagree with that. However, if that is your choice, you want to make damn sure that you understand all the protocol. So how do you explain the misunderstanding? I mean, from the outside, it seems like that's preventable. So how did that happen?
4: My best theory in that the Patriots have been as locked down as they've ever been, especially in things related to COVID, is that Cam felt that he would be able to get a test kind of anywhere. It didn't have to be a bioreference test at the stadium. And it does matter. It's a, it's a more intensive test that looks for antibodies in a different fashion. And the league puts it out there that, that bioreference test has to be had. So I think that Cam thought, well, if I go and I'm not back to Gillette to get it, I can just get it somewhere. I can't imagine the Patriots said, yeah, you're cool with that. So my guess is he probably didn't ask. just did it, and as a result, there you are.
0: Right. That's exactly how it sounds to me. Your
4: argument to be, you know, extremely dependable and on your details.
0: Exactly, especially if you were that guy in that position on a one-year deal competing for a job or if you're anybody at all in that league. So, Tom Curran joining us. You mentioned how impressed you were with Mac Jones. One of the questions about him at Alabama was the fact that he was surrounded by stars. So, was he just a game manager or is there something that sets him apart? Is there something that makes him special? From what you've seen of him, is there something special about him? And if so, how would you describe it?
4: Yes, it is a level of assuredness that he gets the information
0: and doesn't second
4: guess it. Like, you know, when you were in geometry or algebra or something, you had to finally go, oh, yeah, oh, no, no, now I got it. I got it. I've seen it for the 12th time. He gets it the first time. And Brian Hoyer, who's been in the league for 12 years, said this the other day. He was talking to Mac Jones, and he said, you look at him, and he's not really reacting to something. You said, you get that? He goes, yeah, yeah, I get it. And Hoyer's like, okay, sure, you get it. And then, sure enough, he goes out and performs that way. So I don't know if it was the Sarkeesian, Saban, Dayball influence on him. And, of course, you look at Brian Dayball and what he's done with Josh Allen and Josh McDaniels now, and this kid has the aptitude to master things and be confident that what he's looking at is real. That, to me, is why his floor is so high. I don't think he throws it with great NFL velocity. And the guys aren't as open here as they were there. And he does have a frame that's going to need some more meat on it. But he's not going to kill you with decisions that are going to make you say, my God, what was he thinking?
0: Tom Curran talking all things Patriots with us. All right. So this morning, you asked Belichick if there was any advantage to not naming a starter for a while. What did you make of his response? I'm sorry, did you take us through the response? What did you – there you go. Oh, yeah. yeah,
4: Jimmy, I'm sorry. I thought you had the audio. No,
0: no, um, no. It was, what did you I make of think, his response to your question?
4: I was surprised. I was surprised because I felt as if there is a, an inherent advantage when you have two quarterbacks who are so different, Newton and Jones, to hatching that on Miami on September 12th and say, okay, good luck. Which one's playing? But Belichick countered and said, you know, it's probably an advantage to the players on the team knowing who's the quarterback too. And I guess that's true. If you're going to spill your blood, sweat and tears for 30 days to try and earn a job to just keep walking out of the building, not knowing if you earned it or not or got it or not, um, would probably not be great. So I really think, and I am very much in the minority here, that Mac Jones is still going to be named the Starter.
0: that's really interesting. I was going to say to you, do you think that Belichick genuinely does not know who the starter is and has not yet decided, or he has some sort of timing that he thinks is going to work in his favor by not announcing it right now and that that's better for the team? Does he know?
4: I think he probably knows which way he's going to go.
0: And to me,
4: the reason you don't go ahead after the week that just passed and Mac Jones was out there playing so well and Mac was missing all that time. The reason you don't just give the symbolic gesture of Mac Jones starting that game is you haven't had an opportunity to really get Cam into a room and say, this is what we're going to do. And if you had done that prior to last night and went and started Mac Jones and he gets a high ankle sprain on the second series, it's uh, you know what, Cam? Actually, that whole conversation we just had, forget that. You're back in. It just wasn't necessary. So I think we're getting close to the time where it is necessary, but I think that there's a lot of factors that have led to Cam continuing to be the guy on the field at the beginning of drills and the beginning of games. And I, I, if you look at the number of reps, though, and the number of reps he's taken, Mac Jones with the starters, it's pretty clear they're trying to get him ready.
0: I was going to say, Tom, so other than the number of snaps and the time with the starters, other than, I guess, the thought that he gives him a better chance to win, why do you think that Belichick, or why do you think that Mac Jones is going to be the guy week one over Cam? What's the separation there?
4: He's outperformed him in terms of accuracy and decision-making. The ball comes out quicker. And if you spend all the money the Patriots did on downfield wide receivers and tight ends, and you have a third down back like James White from normally catches 90 balls and could only catch 40 from Cam last year because it's just not his forte. Then you get back to the guy who runs the offense the way you're accustomed to. And it's certainly going to be Mac Jones. The only things that argue for Cam right now are the symbolic. He's been out there at the beginning of these games and reps. And Bill having said, well, he's our starter. But in every instance he said that, Jim, he also quickly added a for now caveat to it. So uh, I I really think it's it's fascinating to watch this play out, though.
0: It is absolutely fascinating. I can't wait to see how that plays out. So, before I let you go, nationally, the big story is how that plays out with the quarterback situation. But then there's Stephon Gilmore. Where do you think stand with him?
4: I think he's going to sit there until the opener or the opening week, and then his the quad is going to magically heal. Belichick has given him outstanding cover and not making it sound like it's a hold in. Keeps talking about the quad injury. Meanwhile, Stephon Gilmore reportedly was running fine at the end of June. On July 8th, when he talked to Josina Anderson, he said he was good to start training camp if it came to that. And now it's August 30th. So he has long since probably recovered to the point where he could be on the field. But Belichick has provided him cover, so it didn't turn into a big pissing contest. Hmm. So I don't know if he'll get the raise or not, though.
0: All right, so you and I, really quickly, have not talked since Super Bowl. If you were to give Tom, Bill Belichick, some truth serum, how do you think he was feeling as Tom Brady won a Super Bowl in his first season away from the Pats? This is about the last thing I needed to see now.
4: <laughs>
0: right? <laughs> bu- yeah, was no kidding. That would probably be
4: him. The bubble. Oh, Jesus. But think about this, Jim. <laughs> if they don't start Cam Newton, I just wrote this, so they ushered Tom Brady to the door. He goes down because they felt that Jimmy Garoppolo was the better replacement and and all that. So Garoppolo is getting phased out in San Francisco. Meanwhile, Brady gets ushered to the door, and he throws 40 touchdowns, 4,600 yards, and wins a Super Bowl. And the Patriots are running around with Cam Newton. I mean, so whatever decision gets made, there is a little bit of compromise. Belichick's been compromised in his quarterback decision-making over the last five years, certainly.
0: I wonder about this, Tom. So like, for instance, like, what's the vibe like around the team these days without Brady? Does it feel like a different team and a different culture, or is it still the Patriot way and they just roll on with the Patriot way?
4: It is very much the Patriot way. It's almost a reboot. I think guys are adopting it and falling in line, um, and there is not, and, that, and that's the thing, is... The specter of Tom over the team and the feeling that there was a tug of war and some dysfunction going on could be a distraction and was a little bit of a distraction at times. Even with all the success toward the end and the Super Bowl in 2018, these guys are all pulling their oars in the same direction, Cam Newton included so far, and certainly Mac Jones. So I think that they're in a better headspace than they were at the end of 2019
0: by a lot. So bottom line, this, you've been great with your time, but let me ask you before I let you go. Last year was so weird in so many ways. You had COVID, you had players opting out. They finished below 500 and more. Knowing all of that, what kind of a Patriots team are you expecting this year? Does it feel like that team is going to go back to the postseason after last year's absence?
4: Absolutely, because when you look at the guys that they had, especially offensively, it was like going into a nice fight with a you know, squirt gun, and They've added tight ends. They've added wide receivers. Cam Newton, even if you go with him, is probably 30% better than he was. Um, They have all the offensive linemen back and healthy. You've got Hightower back. You've got Uche, who's a terrific player. You've added Matt Judon. This is just rolling out of bed to be an 11-win team, Jim.
0: He is a Patriots insider for NBC Sports Boston. Unbelievable at what he does. Longtime friend of the program, too. Tom Curran. Man, so good to hear your voice, Tom. Great to have you back. Appreciate you, and All thank right, you so Jim. much. Too long. It's been too long. So we're here. That does not mean, though, that the final exhibition games were meaningless. Hell no. There are some really good things that happened this past weekend. Some really good things. Some really awesome things. Some pretty awful things. And some things that were just weird. In other words, a pretty good weekend for the preseason. Since I'm all about the awesome, why don't we start right there? The awesome, incredibly, is a penalty. And I'm not talking about like a penalty in a high-stakes game where a player gets decapitated and there's a non-call. Not that kind of penalty. I'm talking about, and not just, you know, a delay of game penalty, the most boring penalty of all. But actually, that is what I'm talking about. And I'm talking about that because it happened in an exhibition game and because it happened in Buffalo. If there's a delay of game call in an exhibition game in Buffalo, then that's awesome. If you don't believe me, check this. Third and goal. Fans making noise here at Highmark Stadium. Love demanding a play clock runs out. And a delay of
3: game against Green Bay. Love was trying to scream and stomp his foot to give the nonverbal signal as well as scream, and he just can't hear.
0: Hey, Bills Mafia, if you need them, listen. If you can't respect that or even have that fire you up, I'm not sure what will. We're talking about the Bills Maf- Mafia screaming their lungs out during an exhibition game. Jordan Love under center, not even Aaron Rodgers jacking with the opposition and causing a delay of game penalty in an exhibition. That's pretty amazing. This is why you can split the NFL fans into two separate groups, Bill's Mafia and then everybody else. Only that crew would force a delay of game penalty in the second quarter of a meaningless exhibition game. That play sounded like Arrowhead in a January playoff game, except it was an August exhibition game, and they're still bringing that same noise that same pain. I'm surprised sex toys weren't flying on the field. Gotta respect that. Much respect, Bill's Mafia. A delay of game call in the second quarter of an exhibition game. Then you've got Jacksonville. How about this from Trevor Lawrence? An absolute dime. Lawrence going deep down the sideline. And inside the 25 yard line. What a great job
1: of
0: on the sideline for that young quarterback, Trevor Lawrence, right here. Picture perfect. Right down the sideline, over the shoulder, putting it where only the receiver could get it. That was a perfect throw and a perfect catch. Amazing to think that that guy just barely beat out a sixth-round draft pick for the starting job. But he had to make plays like this, I guess, in order to do so because then he did this corner of the end zone and it is the Trevor Lawrence and LaVisca Chenault drive there for Jacksonville.
1: Steal the show. Well you say what you will we
3: are seeing well, what, what,
0: what they talking about. Here.
1: Trevor Lawrence knows hey I got man coverage
4: all I have to do is get this ball up into the corner that's where it goes easy pitch and catch. That's a
0: perfect throw. It was a perfect throw from a guy who's stealing the show. You can't have
1: a newcomer come in and Steal the
0: show. No, we gotta have that sixth-round draft pick to push him in a quarterback competition. Can't just let that new guy steal the show.
1: You can't have a newcomer come in and steal the show.
0: Never have that. That's why you have a quarterback competition. You can tell me there was an actual quarterback competition. What was that all about? For who? For what? Why are you taking any time away from Lawrence for some joke competition? Because there was no way anybody was going to beat that guy out for that job. Why do you think Herb took that job? Because of the guy he could select first. He was not getting beaten out by anybody, much less a guy who was traded to Philadelphia the moment that fake quarterback competition ended. Yeah, and don't tell me that Lawrence only looked that good against the Cowboys because Gardner Minshew pushed him. That's not the case at all. He looked that good... Because he is that good. The Jags just need to make sure they keep this guy right and not screw him up. And make him waste his time beating out guys in fake quarterback competitions. I've actually got some positive things to say about Gardner that I'll try and get to later on. Now, speaking of quarterback competitions, and I mean actual quarterback competitions... A legitimate one, not some fake one like Herb tried to conjure up or manufacture. Yesterday, we got a look at what the 49ers offense might actually look like. And if there is a quarterback competition, but maybe you don't actually pick one, but you use both. And it looked pretty damn good. You see, for a while now, Kyle Shanahan has been saying that he will use both Jimmy G and Trey Lance. And if you were wondering what that might look like, it looks like Jimmy G starting the Niners first possession, and then Lance coming in for a little read handoff. Trey Lance
1: jumps in, and he does handoff to Mostert. Mostert gets the edge. You got speed
0: going right, and you got speed going left. What do you do? You truck dudes. I saw that, and uh, I was like that Jack Nicholson reaction shot, you know, where he's nodding slowly and enthusiastically. That was actually pretty cool. That's different. That shakes things up. That's pretty scary if you're a defense. And then Jimmy G comes back into the game, and then he goes out after that. But then he was in the game on third and goal from the one, which means that if he's in on third and goal from the one, he's going to pass the ball, right? Wrong. They're going to roll Garoppolo. Hope at the fullback. Jimmy will die! Goes head first. He's got the touchdown. After all that, it's Garoppolo who runs it in as the quarterback. Yeah, I I'm not, i don't know about that. Like, like, Kyle is an absolute genius. But I think we could probably debate whether or not it's a great idea for a quarterback with a history of injury to be diving and putting his head down for a meaningless touchdown in a meaningless ex- exhibition game. And pretty aggressively at that. But you can't debate whether or not this two-quarterback system is cool. Because it is. You know that whole thing about if you have two quarterbacks, you really don't have one? Not in this case. N- not when it results in TDs like this from Lance himself.
1: Herd goes in motion. It's going to betray Lance. So we'll go into the end zone. Touchdown!
0: So... In terms of this two-quarterback system and whether or not it might actually be that, on the first drive, Jimmy had five plays, Trey had five. On the second TD drive, Jimmy had nine, Trey had five. I mean, I can't lie. Like, I like this bleep. Normally, it does not work, but if anybody can make it work, it's Kyle Shanahan, son of the lobster. These guys are brilliant. Now, I know that yesterday was probably more about the mechanics of the subbing and and the ironing out the kinks, and you probably are only going to use something like that in spot situations. However, it was cool to see. And that's not just me. Even the guys who were a part of it thought that it was cool to see. Raheem Mostert said, quote, it catches you off guard because I'm used to having Jimmy in there the entire time. So then when Trey comes in, it's just like, oh, here comes Trey. What are you doing in here, five? But it's cool. It's definitely unique. And it's honestly fun. End of quote. So if that's his reaction, what do you think opposing defenses are going to think? I bet they're not going to think it's cool. I'm not sure it's sustainable. I'm not sure how that looks and plays out over the course of a 17-game season. But I love the way they're looking at it. I love the way they're trying to make use of it. And I want to see how it plays out over 17 games. And yesterday was not just about those two guys. The defense got in on the act as well. Second and 10. Peterman got a pump, go down the middle. That ball is intercepted by Ha Ha. Ha Ha Ha. Is he going to take it to the end zone? Ha <laughs> <laughs> Ha, Clinton Dix will get tripped out. <laughs> <laughs> Too much. Ha <laughs> <laughs> Ha, <laughs> Clinton Dix. It goes without saying he's on the list. One of the all time greatest <laughs> names ever. But fact is, he's still getting it done. He's still making plays and still inspiring weird reactions from the announcers like, ah! ha ha! Ha I love it when this guy makes plays because it elicits reaction like this. My ha-ha. <laughs> Ha-ha-ha. <Ha-ha-ha-ha. laughs> Let's go to Seattle. Marcus in Seattle. What's going on, Marcus? How are you?
1: no Romero. Man, I'm feeling good. Long time no talk to. How are you?
0: Good, dude. Good. What's up?
1: Oh, man, just wanted to piggyback on your take of the Sunday pay-per-view. Um, I pretty much have the same thoughts. You know, only pay-per-views on a Sunday now were sports entertainment. So it was pretty much sports entertainment, but it was a good card. I learned that Jake Paul can not be a for-real boxer if he gets out the celebrity circuit. And the stealer of the show was probably Amanda Serrano, who showed us that she's probably one of the best female boxers. And maybe the best in the mayor if she goes up against somebody like the bullet or something like that. But overall, good card,
0: last
1: fights. But that's all I got. War, jungle Tourette's. War, jungle addiction.
0: I'm out. All right, my man. That's interesting. So he said that he did throw down for it and thought that it was a good fight card. And was not that unhappy. Listen, in terms of Jake Paul, and again, I did throw down for that. I'm not one of those guys who's going to sit back here and be all old school, OG, old man and say, get the hell off my lawn. Like, I understand what's going on here. All right? This is not the way it used to be. It wasn't like it's just boxing and boxing rules. And then all of a sudden MMA shows up and Dana White and the UFC take over. And then that's what that is. And that's still a dominant thing. That's still a thing. One of the biggest things in the world. So I'm not the guy to rush up in here and say, man, this is garbage. YouTube, Fools, what a debacle and a circus sideshow. People like it. It's a show. This is the world we live in. So that's fine. So I'm watching it. And the fact of the matter is Jake Paul and his team have been honestly brilliant in the way they built this thing out. Literally brilliant. You take a YouTuber, a content creator who never really has boxed before, and all of a sudden he goes into the gym, and he's got some ability, some athleticism, some size, and they start having him fight. And not just fight, it's content, right? It's not, it's not so much a fight as it is content creation. He's creating content and buzz, and he's talking junk, and they're hand opponents who seem credible on paper, but really aren't, because that's not where they live, and that's not what they do. And then he knocks one out. And he's a former NBA. And then all of a sudden, people are starting to look at him. Like, what's going on here? And then he picks another MMAer or an MMAer in Ben Askren, which is brilliant. Brilliant. Because Ben's a really good name, but Ben is not a real good striker. In fact, the next punch, and I love Ben Askren, I love this guy. But the next punch he throws might be the first. So they find a guy who is retired, coming off hip replacement surgery, and really doesn't look like he's been in the gym at all. And they whack him out. And then the credibility factor just keeps going up. And then they find Tyron Woodley. And they're like, all right, then this guy is the real deal. This guy at one time was thought to be the very best and one of the best to ever do it. But again, a closer look, what do we have? we got a 39-year-old guy who has lost his last four fights. I mean, these guys are really smart in the way they do this. Oh, and another thing. Did you see the fight? Like, Paul's twice this guy's size. They may have had a catchweight at 190, but like twice his size. So Woodley's credible. Woodley shows up and looks the part. But Woodley is another guy who is A wrestler. A wrestler. So they're really smart in how they build this thing out. He's a wrestler, he's smaller, and he made Paul work for eight rounds. So the one positive about Jake Paul in that situation is, he didn't blow this guy out, so he had to show a little grit, had to show a little heart, had to show that he could fight longer than a round or two, and he did do that. But did not look spectacular doing it, did not blow this guy out, did enough to win. And and did win the, the fight going away. Like, the one judge who awarded that fight to Woodley is either blind, deaf, dumb, or blind. I mean, that's utterly ridiculous. Woodley won one round, literally. So where does this leave Jake Paul? Afterwards, he was in the ring and shouting out to his hometown of Cleveland and saying, I did this for you, Cleveland. And the city of Cleveland seemed pretty underwhelmed by the whole thing, honestly. Then he says, you know what? In terms of the question of what's next, what's next? He started to say things like, you know what? I'm a 24-year-old guy. I've made some mistakes. I'm trying to figure out what's next. I haven't gone to the barber in a year and a half. I haven't gone to the dentist in a year and a half. i got to get my teeth fixed. i got to get my hair fixed. He sounded like a guy who needed a break. We'll see. I know this. The next fight is really critical to this guy and whether or not we keep paying attention. He got my attention. You're proficient. You're not embarrassing. It's not a freak show. I think the guy does work. I think the guy does care. But he's doing these things against guys who aren't boxers. If you want to be taken seriously as a boxer, you need to fight a boxer, a professional boxer. If that's not your intent, and your intent is like, you know, that's really not what this is. It's not even about boxing. It's about a show. It's about a spectacle. It's about pay-per-view. It's about creating content. It's about getting paid. If it's about all those things, fine. But understand people will lose interest if you keep beating guys that aren't in your sport. You know, notice he's not asking any of these guys to take that fight to the ground. It's not MMA. He's taking MMAers who don't know how to box and he's boxing them, and it's smart. But now we need to see something else. What's the next thing? What's the next level? Who is the next fighter? You know, Fury, Tyson Fury's bro, fought on the same card and did not look good at all. That was supposed to be the next thing. No way you're going to sell me that. You know, and then the next thing also was, yeah, well, how about a rematch? We don't need to see that again. You don't need to run that back again. We just saw it. We just paid for it. It was super one-sided. So, you know, on the one hand, I can't say that, yo, yo, that's my dude. I love that guy because I don't. But I can respect what they've built. I can respect the business. I can respect the model, but what's next? Show me something I haven't seen. Show me something else. And if you want to be taken seriously as a boxer, box a professional boxer. Not another YouTuber, and not a washed up MMAer, and not a guy that's 39, and Woodley was fine. He was fine, but extremely frustrating. The same Tyron Woodley that we've seen in recent years, a guy who's in there and just not doing nearly enough, not nearly active enough, could have done more, should have done more. Why he didn't do more, I have no idea. Yeah, granted, he was boxing for the first time. I get that. And the first round or two did not go well, but then he settled in. He was doing some damage. Just not enough work. In terms of Jake Paul going to get his teeth fixed and his hair fixed and taking some time off, Hey, he must have been feeling pretty good when he woke up this morning because he reached for the phone and he immediately started calling out Connor and Nate Diaz. And I can see where Connor and Nate Diaz would want to do that, man. Easy money, easy money. Nate's sort of interesting because Nate is a gangster, and I mean that in the best way. And Nate's a better boxer. So, did you watch it last night? Did you like what you saw last night? Are you still interested in this? Where do you come out? One eight hundred six three six eight six eight six. Where I come out is, it was I. Zayat. Right. Right. He showed me a little something by going eight rounds. Showed some heart. Showed some grit. But he was tired now. He was gassed out. Woodley could have and should have taken advantage of it. And I would imagine the MMA world that was looking for a guy to shut the YouTuber up was not real happy with Woodley. And no, we don't need to see that again. I don't need a rematch there. Then the other thing was, Jake Paul said, oh, you'll get your rematch as long as you get that tattoo. The loser of the fight had to get a tattoo of the other guy. So apparently they're not talking rematch until Woodley gets a tat that says, I love Jake Paul. Given how much money he might make for a rematch, he probably would find that a cheap price to pay. Here's the other thing with these guys. They're making more money doing this than they did in any MMA fight they ever had. So that makes you kind of question like, well, how badly do you really want it? Like Ben Askren, and I'm not down on Ben for this, but I guarantee Ben came out of that fight no sooner than it was over. And not only was he not embarrassed, my man was probably laughing. Like, are you kidding me? I just made half a mil for that. Let's go right to crypto with it. And turn that half a mil into a mil or a million and a half. Oh, I'm a meme? I don't care. I just got a half a mil. He is Michael Lombardi, and he joins us once again. Michael, it's great to have you back. Michael, how are you?
1: I am great, Jim. Thank you. How are you?
0: Good, good. It's great to have you, Michael. Thanks so much. So the preseason is over, and let me start right here. Given your experience in the front office, you know there's been a lot made of what goes into the quarterback battle, deciding who the quarterback's going to be, and you've made the point that the leaders need to use, quote, second-order thinking. For those who do not know, what is that, and how does that apply here?
1: Well, second-order thinking is when you make a decision – you know, you, you just decide a or B and second order thinking is once we decide what's the impact of our decision, let's work our way through the decision and let's take Mac Jones and Cam Newton as an example. So if you, it's easy to say, start Mac Jones, he looks better. But when you're thinking in second-order thinking and you say, well, what happens if he struggles early part of the season, as most rookies tend to do at quarterback? What happens to his confidence? What happens if he gets hit too often? What happens if he doesn't play well? What happens if the team loses faith in him? How do I recover from that? I can go back to Cam, but does does this really help Mac Jones? If I start Cam and gradually build into Mac Jones through the season, through an organic process, there's no pressure on him. So what Belichick is always going to do when making a decision is process it through second order thinking. So he wants to see where his, this decision will lead him and what road it takes him. When he, turned, when he turned and put Tom Brady in the game, there was no second order thinking because Drew Bledsoe got hurt. That's easy. It's an easy decision to make. But with, if this decision was based on Tom Brady's second year and Drew Bledsoe, we saw what happened. We saw that Drew Bledsoe was the starter. So I think that's what second-order thinking and how it applies.
0: Michael Lombardi joining us. Really interesting. So would you make the same argument, and does that situation also apply to the deal in Chicago with Andy Dalton and Justin Fields, or is that a different situation?
1: Well, I think it does apply in some sense. Because, look, let's face it, the Bears just signed Jason Peters to be the left tackle. At 39 years old, he can't stay healthy. So if they put Justin Fields back there, there's probably a good chance he's going to get hurt. He's going to get hit. He's going to lose some confidence. And so you're going to have to work around that. Now, the, the, the converse effect of that, Jim, is let's put an offense in that kind of can minimize the offensive line, right? So it can help our offensive line a little bit with a guy that can run. And I think where Nagy's making a real tactical mistake by not at least having open competition is the fact that his team, I don't think, is very good. I mean, last year, you know, their defense really struggled. Under, under Chuck Pagano, they struggled. You know, we, we saw Khalil Mack take a giant step back, only had nine sacks, 12 quarterback pressures. I mean, Akeem Hicks led the team in quarterback pressures. Robert Quinn never showed up from, his, from the signing with the Rams, so they had no pressure. They lose Kyle Fuller in, in, as, as a calf casualty to Denver. Who's going to cover? Like, how good are the Bears? What are their strengths? Everybody, everybody says defense, but nobody watched their defense last year. It wasn't a strength. It wasn't their best unit. It wasn't the same defense we were used to two years ago. So I think, to me, if I were the Bears general manager, I would be urging Nagy, look, let's rebuild. Let's start the process now. Let's take the same approach that Jacksonville's taken, that that the Jets are taking, and build a team around this young quarterback and see where we go.
0: We're talking to Michael Lombardi. So, Michael, can you do that? I mean, obviously, you can do that. But what happens when your coach and GM are on the hot seat and feeling pressure? Are they going to be motivated to do that, even if it is the right thing?
1: Well, I mean, look, Andy Dalton's going to get you fired, right? You're going to win four games. You're not going to play the young player, and there's going to be a new guy coming in. If you, if you start coaching Justin Fields and you start seeing progress being made, then it's easy to say, well, why don't we just keep everybody, and we're going to grow with this quarterback. You know, I I think that's the fallacy of the false alternative. Like everybody thinks Dalton's there to save this job. I think Dalton's there to really get them fired. They're going to lose your job if you play. You're going to be 5 and 12. Oh, great. We're six. You know, we're 6 and 11 now. We're really good. Like, where are we going with Andy Dalton? Where are we going?
0: I'm not going to argue that point. Michael Lombardi joining us. It's well said, actually. So, Michael, what do you make of the situation with the 49ers and how Kyle Shanahan is using his quarterbacks? What do you make of what you've seen from Lance? And how do you think that whole thing plays out this year?
1: Well, I mean, let's start with Lance first, Jim. I don't think, Lance, I mean, you could watch the preseason tape. There's no defensive coordinator who's watching that tape thinks Lance is ready or they're worried about Lance starting week one. They know Lance is raw. They know he holds the ball too long. They know it takes some time to process. But what Kyle wants to do, what Kyle did this week three was to create an illusion. He wants the defensive coaches that he goes against to spend time preparing on a Trey Lance package. And what's the number one asset any coach has Monday through Saturday? Time. So if I spend 10, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, three hours preparing my team for a Trey Lance package that I may or may not see, I'm wasting time from the other things. And I think that's what Kyle did. Kyle knows for his team at a Super Bowl-level team, it needs to stay status quo with Jimmy Garoppolo. This is not to imply that Lance isn't going to be a good player. It's just Lance could hurt them more in September than help him. Garoppolo helps him. But what he's done is create this, this idea, which I have said all along. He's going to have a package for Lance. Much like we saw Lamar Jack's, Jackson's package in Baltimore when, he took, when Joe Flacco was there. And eventually, organically, it took over because Flacco. We're going to see that. Now, how much we see Lance move, and fo- move the ball, play a little wildcat offense or do whatever, I think you're going to see more of that.
0: Michael Lombardi is an NFL insider for The Athletic. He is co-host of the GM Shuffle podcast. He is a three-time Super Bowl winner, the co-creator of The Daily Coach as well. Michael, what do you make of Cam Newton missing five days last week due to a misunderstanding of COVID protocol?
1: Well, I think he he, took the, he didn't go to an authorized test dealer. I think that's the problem. I mean, he understood the rules. He didn't violate team rules. I think he went to someone that thought that he thought that he felt was an authorized test taker, and they weren't. So that put him in the program. Look, I think the rules are great. I don't think I, I think the rules are wonderful. I think the NFL is protecting their business. And if you don't follow the rules or understand the rules to the letter of the law, they're going to affect you. We see it today. Carson Palmer, he goes on the COVID list, right? I mean, if you don't want to get a shot and you don't want to get vaccinated, you better make damn sure you understand the rules and you adhere to the rules.
0: Carson Wentz, right? Yeah, Carson Wentz, I'm sorry. Yeah, no. So I was going to ask you about that. Carson Wentz, he did go on the COVID-19 list earlier today. Michael, so from a front office standpoint, what do you and you kind of just did answer this, but what do you think front offices think of players who are choosing to not get vaccinated?
1: I think they make, they make it very hard on us. It makes it hard on them because you don't know. You don't know. I mean, you don't know if the guy's going to do something that could jeopardize his team. And it, and we know this 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 problem. COVID is, is a killer. We understand it. And no one can figure out how it spreads, why it spreads. Do we wear masks? We don't wear masks. You know, this is, there's no recipe. Everybody, there's no recipe. We just know that it's deadly. And we know we have a vaccine that prevents it. That doesn't prevent you from getting it. It prevents you perhaps from dying, which is ultimately the most important. So, you know, I, I think it's frustrating for teams, especially with players that won't give you an answer why they don't want to take it. You know, what's the information? What's the data point that you're using to not get vaccinated? You know, the FDA just approved the Pfizer shot. Okay, so is that going to help you make a better decision? But I think it's very challenging, Jim. I think it's the rules. Look, the NFL owners, there's 32 of them, plus the players are part of it. Their business took a huge hit last year. The players felt it. The salary cap went down. They're not going to do that any longer. They're going to protect their business.
0: We're talking to Michael Lombardi. So, Michael, let me ask you really quickly. You don't want to read too much in a training camp, and I'm really curious, and I agree with what you just said, by the way, wholeheartedly. You don't want to look too much in a training camp, but I'm curious what you think about the New York Giants. Does it feel like a team that's about to turn it around, and do you feel like Daniel Jones is a potential franchise quarterback?
1: You know, Jim, I live near Atlantic City, New Jersey, and the sports book over here in Atlantic City, New Jersey, has huge liability from giant fans who think they're going to win the super bowl. I think the giants are a bad team. The last 10 years, Jim, their record over the last 10 years ranks 26th in the NFL. Their record over the last five years is 28th overall. This has not been a model franchise. Now I know they got two super bowl wins over the Patriots. And I'm not saying this as that's ex Patriot bitter employee that they beat us twice. I'm saying this on what I'm seeing. Daniel Jones struggles. I mean, just watch him yesterday. He doesn't play fast. He doesn't play fast. Their offensive line has been a disaster, starting with their first-round pick, Andrew Thomas. Today they traded for Billy Price, a former first-round pick of the Cincinnati Bengals, who hasn't been able to start for them. If, you have, if you're a bad line and you can't start for a bad line, you must not be very good. So there's a real issue here. And the Giants, people have gotten this illusion that they were playing well last year. Their offense is generic. It's North Turner's offense from 2004. It's as bland as can be. Daniel Jones plays slow. They can't protect him. They struggle when the game speeds up, and they've got to rely on a defense that I think has liability. You know, I think you know Bradbury's a really good corner. They overpaid. They, they literally could have traded a seventh-round pick for Dory Jackson. Instead, they went out and signed them for $21 million. I think the Giants are like a lot of teams. They live in the past, and they haven't been able to embrace the future, and I think it's going to cost them.
0: I like that. He's an NFL insider for The Athletic, co-host of the GM Shuffle podcast. He is an author. He has three Super Bowl rings to his name. He is co-creator of The Daily Coach. He is Michael Lombardi. Sharp as always. Michael, really appreciate you. Thank you so much. Great job.
1: Thanks, Jim. Appreciate you having me.
0: I try to ignore it altogether. But if I did, I wouldn't be doing my job. So why don't you and I have a little conversation? Like, how you all doing? How's your Monday? How was your Sunday? How was your Saturday? In fact, you don't have to tell me. I already know. I know you. I know what it's like. Illinois 30, you 22. Man, that's got to hurt. That's, that is a big, fat, uh-oh. Uh-oh. Not the start you were hoping for. Not the start you were expecting. And just so we're clear, you know me. I shouldn't have to even say this. I'm not here to pile on. I'm not. I'm not here to hate. I love that state. I love that program. That state's always been amazing to me. I love it. One of our first appearances ever out of state was in Nebraska. It was incredible. I'm not here to pile on. Just like I'm not going to bring Brett Bielema on the program to dump a bunch of salt in your wounds. That's not what this is about. I'm here to help you out. I'm here to help you kind of get it out of your system. I want to hear from you. I want to hear from Lincoln. I want to hear from Omaha. Cedar Bluffs! Staplehurst! Staplehurst! David City, McCall Junction, reaction! Council Bluffs. I'll never forget when somebody presented me with a key to the city of Council Bluffs when I went to Omaha. For whatever reason, when I first made the announcement that I was going to Omaha, everybody there, and this is what used to go on on the show back in the day, when there were these border skirmishes, Omaha was killing Council Bluffs. I don't even remember why. So I get off the airplane and I'm kind of moving around, doing my thing, making an appearance here, making an appearance there. And this guy comes out to me and he says in a very official manner, Rome, I want to present to you a key to the city of Council Bluffs. I'm like, this should be good. Homeboy breaks out this tiny piece of cardboard with one of those even tinier keys that are used to open up a lock on a suitcase. And he taped it onto the cardboard and wrote... In handwriting, on this little piece of cardboard, key to the city of Council Bluffs. Why that was funny to me then and still today, I have no idea. So that's why I just shouted out to Council Bluffs. Like, the football season has barely started, and Husker fan is already mired in depression. It's August, and they're 0-1. They're sub-500 for the year. We're not even at Labor Day yet. And it's not just that they lost the season opener, all right? That's bad enough. It's how they looked in the process because they did not look good. Below not good. Below not good. Scott Frost said after the game, quote, it looked like the same movie. I just got done telling the guys we can't have this season be the same movie because this game looked like the same movie today. It did, except it looked like, like imagine the worst movie you've ever seen. And then imagine having to watch that movie on a loop over and over and over again. Like, give me a really crappy movie. What's an example of a really crappy movie? Space Jam 2. Space Jam 2. There's a crappy movie. There's a really, really crappy movie that should have never been made. Imagine having to endure that on an endless loop over and over and over again. That's what the opener was. Space Jam 2. You know. Chili. Space Jam 2. Space Jam 2. You know, the the same sort of crap that we've been exposed to. Like a safety on a punt return. Not just a safety on a punt return. But this safety on a punt return. The decision to try and field a punt inside your own two.
1: We'll try to pin him deep the other way angles it towards the two-yard line caught by Britt slips into the end zone Then he oh. lost the ball. It rolls out of bounds <laughs> Now what are they gonna roll here? Well, the he flag
4: fumbled. drops too. He, he was in the end zone and it looked like he fielded the ball outside of the end
2: zone was in the end zone and was getting tackled in and threw it out All right Michael Martin. What do you think? Is it a safety? No check no is it a safety?
4: They're dropping the flag. In the end zone. In the end zone. By rule, the result of the play Woo! is a safety. I'll How take do you it? like that? Two to nothing.
0: Not a hell of a lot if you're a Husker fan. Learfield Sports with that call. Man, that's just a terrible decision. Like, what are you doing there? I've watched a lot of football in my life. And I've seen a lot of movies in my life. Oh, and speaking of seeing a lot of movies in my life, Space Jam 2 sucks. But I've watched a lot of football in my life. I've never seen that before. I mean, did somebody infiltrate the Husker system and get a Husker uniform? That's a really weird play. And by really weird, I hate to say this cuz I'm I'm usually very careful about college players because they're college players. And the reason I always say that was, you know, they're quote college kids who don't get paid, although they do now. Anyway, that's just that's just dumb. That's a dumb play. The butt fumble thinks that that's an ill-advised play that you're going to hate watching over again on film. Like, I'm no special teams coach, but I don't think I need to be to know that it's never a good idea to field a punt at your own one-yard line. If you're back there as a guy returning punts, you kind of need to know where you are on the field. And if you're on your one, you do not field the punt. If they're good enough to down it on your one, so be it. And I'm pretty sure, too, that if you're down right around the goal line, you don't want to slip backwards into your own end zone and then try to heave the ball out of the end zone. So then the only question on that play was, did his knee touch down in the end zone before he threw the forward pass from the end zone? Running into the end zone and touching your knee down is a safety. We know this. Running into the end zone and trying to throw a forward pass is a safety. So actually, the only question on that play was, to quote that one caller, what were you doing there? Albie, what were you doing there? No, no, no. Me. Me at America's Funniest Videos. What what were you doing there? What, What were you doing there? The wrong thing, right? That's a great question. That's a great question. I can answer that question. Because at that time, our kid was like five. And every five-year-old kid in the world thinks that's the best show ever. And I had a makeup artist that also worked on that show that said, would you like to go? And my response was no. No, I I don't want to be anywhere near that place. But my five-year-old son would. So we went. I will say, though, the host, Tom Bergeron, was all class, man. My man was great. He was such a good dude. Until they came and they started to interview the family. Me, Jano, and Jake. What was was I doing? What am I here for? To see somebody take a big plastic baseball bat to their package. Well, why is anybody here? (laughs) The next time that's not funny will be the first time. (laughs) Anyway, what, what are you doing trying to field a punt inside your own one? I'm not sure. But that, that was not good. In fact, none of it was good. That's not how you want to start not your season. Good. That is not the way you script the first points of the college football season. Falling behind 2-0. And it didn't get much better from there, did it? Nebraska missed a couple of point afters. They had a punt go 26 yards. They had another punt go 19 yards. There were so many mistakes. And penalties at the worst possible time. Bad special team play. Bad decisions. No wonder Scott Frost was saying it looked like the same movie all over again. I mean, the worst thing about that safety isn't that it was a safety and that they just handed the opponent two points. It's that special teams have been a weakness. It's something the coaching staff reportedly spent a lot of time on. And then they go out there and they look worse than they've ever looked on special teams. Like, that was an area that was addressed. That was a priority. Adrian Martinez sacked five times. The Huskers managed 54 yards on the ground from their backs. They actually got up 9-2 and then gave up 28 straight, including this. they
2: got guys spread out everywhere. Here comes the rush on
0: Martinez, and he fumbles the ball. It is loose, scooped up. Tell you what, Illinois plus seven too for that game. Could have made money fading the Huskers. That's another dagger right there. Giving up a scoop and score in the final minute of the first half is brutal, brutal. Actually, everything about Saturday was brutal. They got worked by an Illinois team. They had to play its backup quarterback. And again, Husker fan, because of the history I have with you and the show has with you, I'm not delighting in this at all. I'm not here to pile on. This show has long history of Nebraska. This show has great history of Nebraska. I freaking love Nebraska. I love outside sucks about Nebraska. One of my favorite heckles ever. They were heckling themselves. Outside sucks. Outside sucks. Those were the people inside the bar already in the dead of winter talking junk to their brethren on the outside, waiting to get in to see the show. And by the way, I have to say at that same time, they were mixing in CBS sucks. CBS sucks. Because they had done a feature on the Huskers that was not complimentary. So maybe it's just bad luck. Maybe it's a thing where you win a close game or two and everything starts to turn. Maybe it all comes together. Man, you better hope so. Because if not, look the hell out. I'm not telling you anything you don't already know, Nebraska fans, but this is a dark, dark, dark time. How dark? My guy, Scott Frost, has got to go 15-1 and just to catch Bill Callahan. That's how dark. Did anybody think when they hired him that he would have to go crazy just to run down Bill Callahan, be as good as Bill Callahan, that he would take Bill Callahan? Brett Bielema is my guest. Brett, it is so good to have you back. Brett, how are you? I'm doing good, Jim. Thanks for having me on. Got to ask you, Coach, you and I spoke back in December after you were named head coach in Illinois. It was pretty clear to me that you were fired up about that job, fired up about the potential that came with the opportunity. It also seemed kind of personal to you. Knowing all of that, what kind of emotions were you feeling right before the start of the game Saturday?
3: Well, it's all those, you know, the anxious, uh, the anxiety, the The appreciation, everything kind of rolled all up into one. But as a head coach, you just want to see your team have success. And um, they put in a lot of great preparation. Uh, Nebraska came in fired up as well. We had a couple key moments in the middle of the second quarter that swung a little momentum. And then. Uh, our guys ended up tramping the moment in the third and fourth quarter, which was huge.
0: Brett Bielema, my guest, he had a key moment when Brandon Peters, your starting quarterback goes down in the first (laughs) quarter with an injury. I mean, given the hard times Brett, the program has had and what these guys have been through, it might've been pretty easy for some of the guys to say, Oh man, here we go again. But that's not what happened. What did you make of the way everybody responded?
3: You know, um, I I think, As a head coach, you're always excited when you see your guys, you know, live in the moment, handle the things we've asked them to do during practice. Um, And and you're exactly right. So BP, Brandon Peters, had been here, um, you know, was recruited by the old staff, was actually a a Michigan transfer um, that uh, came in and been at Illinois a couple years, opted to come back for his his sixth, his his super senior year, uh, became the starter, and then uh, um, kind of a routine play, third down, gets a – driven into the ground just and has a shoulder injury that I think we're going to get him back sooner than later. But the next man up, right, ends up being Art Tchaikovsky. And, and uh, Art comes in and uh, does some things, rally the troops, throws a, throws at a pretty good clip, uh, runs the ball effectively. And more than anything, I saw our guys respond in a positive manner and, and ended up getting the victory.
0: Hey, bro, what about Art? I mean, he comes in, he completes 12 of 15 for 124 yards, a couple of TDs, no picks. How impressed were you with the way he stepped up and the way he played?
3: Well, it was it was awesome. He actually did throw one to the other guys, but it, it got called back because of a penalty. So, um, what I saw in that moment, he got uh, driven into the ground, drew a penalty flag, and a little taunting on top of it, and he literally jumped up. I think a lot of guys thought we were going to be calling in our next quarterback, right? But he he got all fired up, uh, and to see the O line, the tight ends, and the running backs react to him getting drilled, uh, and the response was unbelievable. Uh, and it kind of just gave me a good insight as a head coach. You think you know how they're going to respond, but when you saw that moment, that's what—that's probably what got me more excited than anything the whole day.
0: We're talking to Illinois head football coach, Brett Bielema. I'm going to follow you up on that in one minute. I do want to ask you about how that game started in terms of the first points that went on the board. Kind of unusual. What was going through your mind as that safety resulted, the play played out, and that's how you got your first couple of points. Kind of an unusual play, right?
3: It was. Uh, we have a partner, Blake Hayes, who um, – I've seen him punt the ball seventy yards in the air. Just an extremely uh, strong, talented. Uh, he's an Australian punter that uh, really has all the punts. He can go punt long, short, left, right, in between. Um, and so we actually had a situation where the ball was on the forty. So we we didn't we didn't sky it or pooch it. We actually let him uh, drill it. And and then I, I knew their returner where he was standing wasn't really well versed in how far he could punt it. Um, so he started backpedaling and. and Caught the ball without an understanding of where he was, and all of a sudden he saw himself in the end zone with one of our guys tackling him and um, flipped the ball out. So it eventually went through review and got turned up as a, as a safety and gave us the ball again, but was a nice way to. Now, if, if there was a line on uh, the first point scored in the opener it uh, was going to be a safety, I don't know if anybody had that one.
0: You're right. Uh, I'm, first of all, I'm sure there was because there's a line for everything, but I'm not sure who had it. Brett Bielema is joining us. Brett, you and I would talk when you were in the Big Ten, so your last Big Ten game that you coached was against Nebraska, and your return was also against Nebraska. How did it feel to be back in the conference?
3: Well, you know, uh, a lot of time had elapsed through there, uh, but what I remember when they first came in the league, it was actually their first opener um, in the Big Ten play was, was when I was a head coach. Russell Wilson was my quarterback, his debut, and um, so there's been a lot of firsts with me, at least as a head coach, against Nebraska. But this is my first time competing against Scott, a guy I really respect, I've known in the business. Um, and this, this Big Ten West, right, uh, this, this division has been won uh, over the last five years by two teams, uh, Wisconsin and Northwestern. And um, what we've told our guys all along is they want to get in the mix of that. you got to be able to, you know, play at home. Uh, you got to be able to win home football games uh, in the Big Ten West. and And hopefully those things put you in a position at the end of the year, so... Um, There's a lot went into it, um, uh, but on any given Saturday, it's just those two teams, right? Uh, Just like this weekend playing UTSA. It really doesn't matter what we did last weekend. It's all about what we do this weekend is the thing that matters.
0: I get that. I also understand that you made that point to your team that they were the last two teams or there have only been two teams that have won that Big Ten West the last five years and that those teams always hound their business at home. That's exactly what you did. So after the game, I thought you had a great take. You were asked if you were fighting emotions after the win. and Your response was, quote, no, I was just sweating. That said, what were the emotions you were feeling when that clock hit triple zeros?
3: It was, it was pretty cool. The night before, we had actually watched some clips of Nebraska on the road against another Big Ten West opponent, um, and I showed them how they played the first quarter, I showed them how they played the fourth quarter, and how the last two plays of that game were victory formation for for the opponent at home, and how, how great of a call that is. That's like one of my favorite formations and calls to make, is a victory to run out of clock, and, and that's literally the last two plays we watched the night before the game, and And lo and behold, it came down to the same exact scenario. Our defense needed to make a a defensive stand in a two-minute offensive situation where uh, they needed a touchdown to win the game and we were denying them. So a lot of great things that we had prepared for actually materialized right in front of us.
0: Talking to Illinois head football coach Brett Bielema, Brett, I said I wanted to go back to a point that you made earlier that when you saw your guys picking each other up and rallying behind each other, you said after the game, quote, I had a very wise man visit us during fall camp. He told me, Brett, I think your team really likes each other. End of quote. I've heard your guys talk about the fact that you're emotional, so that builds trust with them. It seems pretty basic, right? You want your guys to like each other, but how important is it? And then how were you able to build that culture that quickly?
3: Well, I think it's just being honest and open and real, right? Um, today's kids, everybody thinks they're different. I think they're the exact same uh, when I grew up, when you grew up. All right, we all we all gravitate to people that we trust, right? And I, I think if you're genuine and you're real, like I tell every kid that we recruit, and then the same thing when I got here, right? I'm not trying to be your dad, your uncle, your brother, your cousin. Uh, I'm trying to be your head football coach. I'm going to try to get you to a point that someday you look around, you look to your left, right, front and back and, and you say you know how the hell did i get here right this is pretty awesome um without them even knowing they're on the journey is truly the the most rewarding thing for a head football coach to do um and they have a group of coaches administration a fan base and that, that everything's about saturday but 40 45 000 people uh here in memorial stadium they had not had those numbers in a while obviously because of covid but a sold out student section um just a lot of people that could get excited about illinois football again That. That's what we're all about, and that's what we're trying to
0: build. See, that had to be a blast. I would imagine also one of the positives and something else to get excited about was you had a lot of seniors who had an extra year of eligibility due to COVID, and they came back to play for you. What does that commitment mean to you personally, and then how did it feel to see them celebrating that win?
3: Well, it's a lot of trust, right? They trusted me. Um, I trust them on game day. Uh, We we obviously have a lot of conversations uh, from A to Z to get to that point, but um, it, it's been, you know, the way they've responded, the way they've, uh, you know, I've, I've challenged them the way that we've uh, as coaches try to put a, put an arm around them, but also a, an arm behind them, right, if they need to be pushed. There's a lot of different uh, things that have conversations that have taken place to get us uh, to this opener and, and to have a win was good. But now this, the, the, the challenge to do it again, you know, now we're in a, a, a week where you don't get all spring and summer to prepare. You have to prepare in the moment. Uh, against a team that, that you know returns 11 defensive starters, 10 offensive starters, and a lot of really good experience on the coaching staff. So it's a tremendous challenge.
0: I was going to say, finally, UTSA, Saturday, 7.30 p.m. Eastern. So how long did you allow your guys to celebrate that one? And then what was your message to them after the win as you get ready for this game?
3: It was, it was pretty simple. Um, you know, you always learn from the past. And I remember my first years as a head coach with Coach Alvarez at Wisco was, you know, no matter what the situation, always enjoy every win, doesn't matter who the opponent or what the environment or you got to enjoy them all. So I told them to enjoy it with their family and friends, uh, be smart about the decisions they make because we needed Sunday to be a great work day. We had a lot of guys lose a lot of weight. We needed to hydrate uh, efficiently and, and, and regain the, the things that we had lost Saturday during the contest. But uh, we had a really good work day on Sunday. Today they have the day off. Uh, t- Tuesday, tomorrow I'm sure will be a great work day and, and uh, for us to get to where we want to be on Saturday, Tuesday needs to be better this week than it was last week. And then, then good things happen.
0: So finally, Brett, you mentioned Barry Alvarez and he obviously meant a lot to you and brought you in. Have you spoken to him recently and how do you think he'll do in retirement?
3: Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I give him a heat about retirement all the time. We actually did. We, uh, um, uh, you know, have rekindled our relationship. Uh, he's a guy that I use as a, as a mentor in many different ways. Um, uh, he's actually working for the uh, big 10 conference now as well. So he's a guy that I'll see on a new expanded role and, and, um, uh, Uh, The thing that I think I've really enjoyed along the way is this game is big, right? But we all love the the game of college football, and it didn't matter where I've been or who I've been around. It's those mentors and those people of the past that you build relationships that last a lifetime. And Same way, I'm thankful for our relationship, right? The first time I got a chance to interview you to Where we are today, a lot of things have changed, but the relationship has stayed the same, and I appreciate that,
0: Brett. Isn't that something? I I think that all the time myself, and I would not have when I was younger. When people would say to me, "You know, what's really important? Relationships. Relationships are a thing." And I'm like, "Yeah, no, yeah, no." But now that I am where I am, they are the thing. They're the main thing, and you want to keep the main thing, the main thing. So yes, I agree with you, and I appreciate you very much, Brett. Great to have you back. Congrats on a big win, and I'm glad that you and I can have more conversations. And yes, I appreciate the relationship.
3: Looking forward to it, man. Have a great day. I'll Good night now!